TED Audio Collective. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. Hey, this is Dylan Marin, host of Conversations with People Who Hate Me the podcast you just came to listen to. Now, the podcast is taking a really quick break this week. Do not worry. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. It's just with the book releasing last week. It's been a lot, and a lot in a good way. I am so excited to hear from you all about how the book is hitting you, and the things you have said are so nice. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. I just need a nap. So instead, I wanted to share with you an episode of How to Be a Better Human, another podcast in the TED Audio Collective. It is hosted by Chris Duffy, who is, not to brag, one of my very best friends in the world. And on this podcast, he talks to a range of people about how we can do exactly what the title says, become just a little bit less terrible in ways big and small. And I was a guest on it last year, so I'm sharing that episode, that interview, with you here. If you want more, find and follow How to Be a Better Human anywhere that you are listening to this. Thanks so much. Enjoy. Before we continue, I just want to say thanks for being here. Also, you can be on this show too. Has someone said something negative about you online, or maybe you've said something negative about someone else? Either way, after this episode is over, go to www.conversationswithpeoplewhohateme.com where you can fill out a guest form. And if you don't want to be on this show, that is totally cool. I appreciate you just the same. Maybe consider telling a friend about this show. Word of mouth has brought this podcast around the world, so your recommendation goes a long way. I'm Chris Duffy, and you're listening to How to Be a Better Human. If you are online, and especially if you're on social media, it can be really easy to forget that there are people on the other side of the screen. And I think that that is one of the main reasons that I'm such an enormous fan of today's guest. Dylan Marin is the creator and host of Conversations with People Who Hate Me. It's a podcast where he facilitates conversations and tries to explore the humanity of people online. I think that Dylan is incredible. I love him as a person, and I think that his work is so important and fantastic. I don't want to give too much away about what we talked about, but we did end up kind of questioning the ideas that we think we have around reconciliation. We also talked about how maybe debating isn't as productive as we think it can be, and how apologies and forgiveness, they're not this one-and-done, instantaneous, big, climactic moment. All of that is to say that I am really excited for you to hear this conversation, and I am so thrilled that we got to have Dylan as a guest on this show. We're going to be right back after this short break. And we're back. My name is Dylan Marin, and I am a digital creator, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with People Who Hate Me. If someone's never heard of the podcast Conversations with People Who Hate Me, what is the podcast? So at its core, Conversations with People Who Hate Me is a podcast that takes very negative online interactions and turns them into hopefully productive offline phone calls. What that looks like sometimes is that I speak one-on-one -on -one to 
people who have said something negative or hateful to me. And then other times I host conversations between strangers or sometimes even friends who got into it with each other online. You know, you've had this experience, which I think pretty much anyone who's been on the Internet in the last 10 years has had of seeing people saying things that are cruel or mean or just seem like the kind of things you wouldn't say to someone in person Hmm. or it wouldn't be okay to say to someone in person. And then instead of being, (laughs) I guess, like turned off by that and like, I'm just going to walk away from the computer. You thought, like, how can I dig deeper into this, which seems to me like the opposite of what most people's reactions would be. So where did that come from for you? So to be totally honest with you, it came from a coping mechanism. I began to get a big you know, onslaught of online hate, online negativity, when I was making very popular digital videos. And these digital videos commented on social issues from my, you know, progressive left perspective. So I got kind of the expected political pushback. I also got, you know, some pushback from people fellow lefties who felt that I wasn't the right kind of lefty or wasn't doing leftyism correctly. And the key thing to know is that um, through serendipity, these videos primarily were released on Facebook. And I I bring that up because, because of that, I was given an opportunity that every message I got, every DM I got, every comment I got was often linked to the profile of the person who sent these. And when I clicked on the profile, I could learn so much about them. And struck me one as funny because it's it's as if like you know you would never send an anonymous hate letter and then paperclip to it you know like where you went to high school and your family records and yeah, your here's likes some photos of my dog dislikes. also I hate yes, you yes and your random thoughts like a journal of your random thoughts but that's what it felt like when i was clicking on the profiles of of my detractors on facebook and so i developed that as a coping mechanism right i needed to see that the people who were sending me this hate were indeed real people. And to explain that psychologically as best as I can understand it right now, I think it was too overwhelming when they were these distant monsters that I couldn't understand. And it soothed me to know that they were these real three-dimensional human beings. And I think that what what helped me the most with that is then it felt that I could reach them. Of course, I was just clicking through them, creating fictional backstories for who they were based on the information I had. And then eventually I had my first phone call. And it seems like, I mean, I, I feel like part of this too is that people are saying really horrible things to you. You weren't putting up like, come at me videos, right? And I think a lot of the conversations that happened at least at the beginning were around your identity and people who were saying things that are just not okay. The interesting thing is it was almost exclusively about my voice, my sexuality, and um, kind of like my perceived levels of masculinity. A lot of comments that denigrated masculinity, which I would include gay slurs among that, right? Like um, oftentimes those are rooted in a kind of like toxic masculinity shaming. So this is where I think it starts to be uh, something that's really 
interesting and different and and new, at least for me, I think we've all had the experience of someone saying something that was cruel or hurtful to us. Hmm. And then you reached out and you created this whole project that's about having a conversation with them. I think what I'm going for with these conversations is I just needed to know that it was a human being who I was dealing with on the internet. And because they were a human being, the logic followed in my mind that I could then reach them, we could connect to each other. That's the best and truest answer I can offer, is that it was to humanize them and also, I think, primarily to humanize myself to them too. And that really hits on this idea that you talk about in the TED Talk of empathy is not endorsement. The idea that you don't have to necessarily win an Mm -hmm. argument to have a connection with this person who disagrees with you or maybe Mm -hmm. even more than disagrees with you, Mm -hmm. um, something even uh, stronger than that. So for people who are listening, how do you get to that place of being okay with just finding empathy? And and even harder, how do you get to find the empathy in another person who you're coming at it from a very different angle? Here's what I believe about you know, this very big buzzword these days, empathy, which is that I don't actually believe that we can teach empathy, right? What I do believe is that we can create spaces where empathy just, you know, grows freely. And conversation is one of those spaces. So the way that mantra came about, empathy is not endorsement, was that what was happening is after I had a number of calls under my belt, after I was talking to a bunch of people, I found that no matter how politically oppositional we were, no matter how much we so strongly disagreed about such fundamental things, when I was on the phone with them, I could not help but see them as a human being. And when when that happens, you start to find, you know, moments of commonality. You start to relate to them. And when you start relating to them, when you start seeing all of who they are when you hear their ums and uhs, you know, when you hear when you hear that like messy phone conversation that is totally erased in online communication, you start to see them as human, you start to like them, and then you start to empathize with them. So empathy is not endorsement was a mantra that I had kind of created for myself as a permission slip to keep going. Has Exploring the idea of empathy, has that changed the way that you think about apologies? Hmm. What a great question. I think to me, I don't know, I don't have a counter of how many literal apologies I've gotten on the podcast. Um, I don't keep tabs of that because to me, for a guest to come on the show and have a conversation with me, where they allow me to get to know them, they're interested to get to know me. And I'm just speaking for myself here, but that is apology enough, right? That is like, you know, sometimes you don't need to say the literal words, I'm sorry, to hear that someone regrets what they wrote, sees you differently, and you can hear, and maybe this is just hopeful, that you have planted a small seed of change in them that may make them reconsider doing that again. So if what we look for in an apology is changed behavior and, you know, accountability, that's just not stuff that happens immediately. And I think we are living at a time when we need things right now, right? We need an apology today, not tomorrow. Do not sit on it. Your silence is just wasted time before we're getting that apology. 
And I also just don't think that's how apologies work, because a lot of times apologies, good apologies, which I, I think are just rooted in the idea of accountability and honest accountability, really take a lot of time for the person to even realize that they did something wrong. I'll take myself as an example. You know, when I'm accused of something um, that I did wrong that I didn't realize was wrong, I don't immediately like change mm. the the more harshly someone identifies it to me, right? It actually, first, I'm defensive, then I'm sad, and then once I start to realize that I actually was culpable, that I did something wrong, then it takes time. It takes time to wrestle with like, why did I do that? How could I do that? How did it get to this point? There's a lot of time that goes into a good apology. So what I see a lot from the periphery of the public square of social media is people so hungry for accountability from systems that I think they train that anger on individual people who have erred. And which individual people they train that on is has a lot to do with who's most accessible to them, right? So it's not necessarily the people who are who have done the most wrong, but it's the people who they can most reach with a Twitter mention, which I think is the tension of the time we're living in today. We're going to be right back with more from Dylan Marin after this quick break. And we're back. It's interesting because I, I think that in the newer seasons of the show, you are facilitating conversations between two people. So someone has said something uh, hurtful or mean to another person, and then you have them have a conversation. And I think that's something that's really interesting is you are creating this space where they can have a conversation and see each other and not have it just be about like, I'm fighting you or we're arguing or we're debating and we're going to win. What techniques have you learned over the course of doing this show to help people have these conversations that actually do end up with seeing someone else? Like, yeah. how can you actually, how can a listener apply that in their own lives when they're approaching a difficult conversation? Yeah. Great question. Well, I think one of the key things is one, remove the audience. And that typically means taking it out of a comment section, you know, not necessarily doing it publicly first, because I think in private, that's where a lot of vulnerability can happen. So that's number one. Number two, I started learning this early on, is that it is so, like it is so easy to be so overwhelmed by every possible topic that you could be talking about, right? And I think this is for a variety of reasons, like we are living in the moment of every, to quote Bo Burnham, the internet is everything all of the time, right? Mm. But so has the news always been, and so has the public square. And so when you're coming from this very like chaotic, overwhelming, everything happening all of the time space, and then you try to move into a private space, that is going to kind of follow you, you know? Yes. And it was happening to me all the time, right? I was talking to a guest. We started one place. We ended up in a totally different place. And we had just been picked up by the everything storm, a tornado that just moved us to a different spot. And that really derails conversation because it doesn't allow you to get to know someone. And it's best to kind of focus on, you know, one, one issue. So 
Another one is don't debate, right? The thing about debate, though, is it is this very combative form of communication. I think there are so many topics that require much more sensitivity than simply just sparring about it with talking points back and forth. And I, I don't think it helps to debate, you know, queer identity, to debate gender identity. Instead, I think a far more productive thing is is to engage in conversation about it. And, and debates work when we can agree about the thing that we're there to debate. Taking an, an apolitical example right here, um, to debate, I have a better microphone versus you have a better microphone, right? We're acknowledging that we both have microphones and we can you know, go back and forth on who has the better microphone, what even a better microphone entails. And and actually, for all the listeners, you will have a poll that you can vote on this after the Okay, show. great, 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 great. Give them the poll. So- when you now think about all that you've learned, all the thinking that you've done around empathy and forgiveness, how does that change what how you approach these real life conversations with people that you really know, with your family mm. or your friends or your loved ones? What are the the tips that you have that you've learned of like this actually makes a conversation go well? Because it seems like one of the big ones that I'm taking away is don't try to win, that it's not at all about winning. Or convincing someone as so, so much. Certainly of, of don't try to win. And like I said, you know, um, avoid talking about everything and, and remove the audience. But I think you're also right. I think uh, a lot of the ways this sprouts up in real life is, is through not strangers, people we know. Hmm. Um, so I'll share this. And I think this was born out of that coping mechanism I established early with, you know, creating backstories for, for my detractors. And really, I do this unconsciously, but now that I'm thinking about it, I suppose I'll do it consciously now. I imagine, like, what is the most loving story I can tell about this person that I'm about to speak to? Because most of the time, I'm not going to say all of the time, most of the time, someone's different way of seeing the world has so much to do with factors that we cannot even see, right? It has to do with how they were raised. It has to do with where they were raised, where they grew up, who surrounds them, who they are trying to impress socially, who, where they want to belong, where they already belong, um, and you know what institutions they belong to, what their leaders are saying, what their media heroes are saying, what their media diet you know constitutes, um, what their media diet is made up of. It starts me off on such um, such a more loving place when I try to understand that the person I'm about to speak to, or in the moment, the person who is saying this thing that I'm like, oh my God, how do you believe that? Mm. That it's like, this is actually, it, it definitely feels hateful. And in many cases, but you have like, the hardest and slash most beautiful thing to realize is that it's not coming from this intentionally hateful place. And that is where the interesting conversations can happen because you're trying to understand where it comes from. So I, I think that the huge caveat is admitting conversations across difference, especially when you're close to someone, are incredibly difficult. And they just require <laughs> repeated application over and over and over again through time. I, it feels like that's one of the most important things here is that um, 
we kind of have this idea, whether it's from like movies or TV shows or or whatever, that we that you're going to have like one amazing heart to heart conversation and it's going to end in tears and a huge transformation. And instead that it's actually like, you know, these are you talk and it's it seems to do nothing and you talk again and maybe you have the smallest bit of connection and then over and over you kind of break these things down. Yeah. But that being said, there's certainly I, and I know I've heard you say this before, that there are certain people and certain topics where you don't encourage having these difficult mm-hmm. conversations. Yeah. Um. So where is that line where you're like, OK, this is a conversation that we should have and we should try and reach some sort of empathy. And this is one where we shouldn't. Well, I think you need to have a baseline of mutual respect in the conversation. Um, you don't want to continually drag someone to a space for conversation, a phone call, where they're going to be humiliated or mocked or belittled or dismissed. Um, so safety is really important. If someone's like threatening you online, you don't then try and be like, how do I build common ground with this person? No, I think, and and that just goes to the very simple rule of safety. I have to feel safe with any, any guest that I invite onto the podcast. And that can mean a variety of things. I mean, I don't speak to anyone who has threatened me with physical violence. Um, I did do one conversation with a man who said, kill yourself, uh, but that got by on a technicality (laughs) because he was asking me to do the violence to myself. And I can't tell you what you determine safety is. So that is for the participants to determine what safety means to them. And obviously a lot of the conversations that that you deal with and also that a lot of us experience where people say these terrible things, they happen online. So what have you found works for yourself in order to uh, avoid treating people in a way online that's more hurtful than you want or then, or, or to be being treated? How do you do both of those things online? Um, well, my answer in the last year has been to log off entirely, but I also think that that is not practical advice, because if you had told me just log off five years ago when I was building my career on the internet and when I was building a community on the internet, I would have said, and I did say to my friends, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. And guess what? I didn't do that. Right? So I am speaking to you now as a person who has just been off of social media for one year, but I'm also speaking to you as a person who has been told (laughs) to log off so many times, and Mm. I never did until I was ready for it. I think a caveat here is that there are a lot of amazing and wonderful things about the internet and social media, and maybe people who are listening right now are finding those amazing things, and they are in the throes of those amazing things right now. I don't think it is possible to call something as huge as the internet, either good or bad. But I do think I have become hyper-aware of how much this mode of communication where we can get points for dunking on each other. I can get more points than you if I clap back at you correctly, if I clap back at you in a funny enough way, if I mock you in a way that my followers think, you know, is worthy of praise, worthy of digital praise, worthy of a digital click. I'm terrified. I I am terrified of a world where we are increasingly in those spaces and don't have enough spaces to actually communicate with each other. Um, I think we're still writing the social norms of the internet as we speak. Um, You know, we as a species are so new 
to this arena, this digital arena, that I don't think we've yet established what is and is not acceptable. We have in the extreme cases, right? Like, But I think part of what we're experiencing with the conversation around cancel culture is we are currently redrafting what is and is not acceptable behavior in the digital sphere and what are the appropriate consequences for that. With that idea that we are, you know, drafting the norms of acceptable behavior online and how people interact, and since so much of our lives now is spent online, how can we create norms ourselves in our own small ways that are based in more empathy? Mm. Chris, what a beautiful question. I think certainly providing space from the internet is important and has helped me. I think really, here's the big thing. The internet, social media, and let's get specific, Twitter, is a really, really, really challenging place to calibrate your moral compass because we have to take time, and it can be online, but I think it also has to, in addition, be offline too, to really, really, really dig in to what we feel and what we think, who we actually want to be, who we actually are. And of course, who we are is a combination of who we are on the internet and who we are off of the internet, because I don't like to traffic in that idea that the internet is not real life and you know this physical realm is real life because we live so much of our lives on the internet. We've talked about how to give a good apology. How do you take a good apology? How do you, you know, mm. be on the receiving end of an apology? Well, I think one way to accept an apology is to also know that it takes time within you to accept it, right? Like, just because someone says sorry, sorry is a wonderful word that, yes, can be used performatively many times and is also policed about what is and is not the right way to use it. But I, I also, I think let's just land on that. It's it's a beautiful thing to say to someone. And it's especially beautiful when it's, when it's said truthfully and genuinely. I think the way to accept it is to also understand that no matter how beautiful that word is, it's not a magic wand that that instantaneously renders you accepting of that apology, right? It also takes time for you to let it settle in and for you to cool off and for you to be like, well, they said sorry, and I'm going to give it a few days, and I know they're a person, and I'm a person too, and so give yourself time to accept it. By all means, we should be identifying if an apology feels fake or if an apology feels insincere. But I also ask that we, I also recommend that we recognize when we are over-policing an apology for not being perfect enough, right? For not hitting every mark, but to accept that like every apology is going to be imperfect, right? Mm. I'm sure one day a celebrity will write a notes app apology that people will be like, actually, this was good. But the truth is like, yes, don't over-police apologies. They're all going to be imperfect. And we can edit them till we can edit them till the day we die. We can mock them until the day we die. But like we are not going to create a 
sustainable path forward if we mock and reject every imperfect attempt at trying to be better. I also just want to add one thing, which is that I think sometimes we are afraid to accept someone's apology because we think that in doing so, we absolve the person of, of the wrong that they did, and we erase the wrong that they did, and we then negate the real feelings of hurt we had from their wrong. But that's also not true. You can both accept someone's apology and still have been hurt by the thing that they're apologizing for and also see them as a full three-dimensional human and also give them the grace to change. And all of those things can be true at the same exact time. I love that. It's so perfect. And I think that really hits it. That hits the nail completely on the head, right? There's, yeah. there's so much nuance around all of these things can exist simultaneously. Yes. Well, um, I apologize for the fact that uh, this interview is going slightly over time, but no, I, I do it. have a few things that I want to continue. Thank you for accepting my apology. And it was not a process. It was an immediate acceptance. Okay. Excuse me. <laughs> Great. Um, okay. So um, what is one idea or book or movie or piece of music or what's something that has made you a better human? Hmm. God, I hear this question, and I always think of a different answer for it. Okay, there is this incredible, incredible documentary called The Painter and the Thief. Quick synopsis is that this artist had a big show. Um, two men stole her most expensive paintings, or, or her most highly priced paintings from the show. Um, she couldn't find them. Eventually, they dis they arrested the thieves, uh, or I think they arrested one thief, and she established this friendship with him. And then, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a scene in the movie where now that they are friends, her and the man who stole her painting, and her paintings are still, at this point, I believe they have not been recovered, and she paints his portrait. And then she shows the portrait that she painted of him to the man who stole what was heralded as her masterpiece. And he looks at the painting and he just starts crying. I think that is like one of the most moving pieces of anything that I have seen maybe in my whole life. I loved that mm. so much. And I please go watch The Painter and the Thief. And then what is one way in which you personally are trying to be a better human right now? I'm trying to be away from my phone more often. And I think for a long time, I was very addicted to my phone. And I would just pull it out at meals. I would pull it out unknowingly, like I cringe retroactively thinking about this now, but I would pull it out when I was talking to someone, you know? Now, I mean, this really helps that I've been off social media for a year, but I put it in another room. I don't even think about it. I don't have something to mindlessly scroll on. And it just allows me to be more present with people. Um, well, Dylan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for uh, talking to us about your work. Thank you uh, for being my friend. And thanks for uh, doing such deep thinking around empathy and forgiveness and uh, how we can be better people out in the world. It's really important. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm a huge fan of this show. Um, Jocelyn and Daniela, huge fans of yours too. So really, really thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. 
That is it for today's episode. I am your host, Chris Duffy, and this has been How to Be a Better Human. Thank you so much to our guest, Dylan Marin. His podcast is called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. On the TED side, this show is brought to you by Abhimanyu Das, who is so beloved by all, Daniela Balarezo, who glows with understanding and acceptance, Frederica Elizabeth Yosefov, who hears and validates your feelings, and Powers, who respectfully and productively disagrees, and Kara Newman, who would never give a fake apology. From PRX Productions, How to Be a Better Human is brought to you by Jocelyn Gonzalez, who does not hate you. Pedro Rafael Rosado, who is trying to listen, and Sandra Lopez Masalve, who understands where you're coming from. Thanks to you for listening. And remember, you will never have to apologize for sharing this podcast with someone who you think will love it. <laughs> <laughs>